Our Bible reading is Psalm 22. Won't you follow with me as I read? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I'm not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust, they trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me. For trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions turn their, tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord... Be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. 
the poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Good. Well, thank you, Gillian, very much indeed. And good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you on this this Good Friday morning. Um, I do want to encourage you to please have your Bible open at Psalm 22, uh, or if you prefer, have the passage open on your phone. I know I say this every week, but I think that you will leave this place today greatly blessed uh, if you take me seriously on that point this morning and have Psalm 22 open in front of you. If you haven't got a Bible, just please raise your hand uh, quietly and Raymond will look around and make sure that he puts one into your hand this morning. Psalm 22. And then just also to say before I pray that um, I know that uh, people are going through all kinds of struggles and difficulties at the moment and if you would like to talk to somebody uh, after the service, uh, then gentlemen, please go and speak to Raymond and the ladies. Gillian will be waiting for you if you would like to speak to someone and just unburden your troubles with them. So Psalm 22 and I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this very precious part of your word. We can see there may be tremendous truths here, but perhaps for many of us it's an unfamiliar text. So we ask that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you and make it clear to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, What does a person think of in their dying hours? Uh, What will you be thinking about on your deathbed as your life is reduced to weeks, uh, days, hours, perhaps just a few breaths? What, I wonder, goes through the minds of men and women on death row? And more pertinently, what does a crucified man think of as he hangs there, left to die a painful and merciless death? Well, I'm sure you realize during the reading that in Psalm 22, we are standing on very holy ground indeed. Uh, We're introduced to that straight away in the familiar words of verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And I think probably most of you here this morning know that those were the words spoken by Jesus when he became a curse for us upon the cross. And it seems, doesn't it, that Jesus quoted directly from this psalm at that crucial moment of his suffering. And as we consider how the psalm begins, it's also very important to notice how it ends in verse 31 with the phrase, he has done it. And uh, the phrase there in the original language could just as well be translated, it is finished, which were, of course, our Lord's final words before he died. So it does seem, doesn't it, that this psalm was in our Lord's mind at the supreme moment of his suffering, and that it was a great source of strength for him in that very, very dark moment when he bore the wrath of God in our place. And that, I think, is the reason why for generations... Psalm 22 has been the Good Friday reading in the prayer book. Uh, You'll notice that the heading tells us that the author was David. But uh, the experts have failed to find anything in David's lifetime that fits the picture before us in Psalm 22. Uh, David was often in trouble, of course, And some of his troubles were extremely painful. But as far as we know, David never actually faced an execution. And this psalm is a description of an execution. We're told, aren't we, that the victim had his hands and his feet pierced, which is, of course, what happened when people were crucified. Everybody knows that. But I wonder if you know this that when David wrote this psalm, crucifixion was unknown in the ancient world. Now that, I think, is an extremely important clue, that this psalm was predicting an event in the future. And I want to show you this before we think about the message of this psalm for you and me this morning. Because Psalm 22 says two things that were not fulfilled in David's day and were never fulfilled until a thousand years after this psalm was written. The first is the fulfillment of the detailed predictions in the psalm in the death of Jesus. Now we've already noted the words in verse 1 spoken by Jesus on the cross and if you're taking notes that's recorded for us in Mark chapter 15 and verse 34. But then in verses 7 and 8, you've got a remarkable description of the the mockery uh, foretold here by David that took place when Jesus was crucified. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Now, it's our only cross-reference today, but I would like you to keep a finger in Psalm 22 and flip over to the New Testament fulfillment of that in Matthew chapter 27. Gospel of Matthew chapter 27, 
verse 39. Let me give you a moment to get there. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 39. Now just listen to this. This is astonishing, I think. Matthew writes in verse 39, Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. Now look ahead to verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Now friends, that is a perfect fulfillment of the prediction in Psalm 22, which said that people would mock this sufferer in these precise words. And when Jesus was on the cross, that's precisely what happened. We'll come back to Psalm 22, because thirdly, in verse 14 and following, Psalm 22 gives us, I think, a graphic description of the agonies of crucifixion. I think it would be very hard, actually, to find a more accurate description of what it was like to be killed, to be executed in this particular way. So verse 14, he says, I'm poured out like water, or my bones are out of joint. Verse 15, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And I'm sure most of you know that the Gospels talk, don't they, about the terrible thirst of Jesus as he hung upon the cross. Verse 17, people stare and gloat over me. And then lastly, verse 18, I think the most remarkable of these predictions. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And that, of course, was expressly mentioned, wasn't it, in the first reading we had this morning, which Faye gave to us. In John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 24, you don't need to turn to it, but it reads, let's not tear his garment, they said. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And then John, as it were, adds his own editorial comment. And he says, this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing, Psalm 22. So there are some detailed predictions of things that never, never happened in David's lifetime and that only took place when Jesus was crucified. And if that is so, my dear friends, I think that is a stunning example of the divine inspiration of Old Testament scripture and also of the sovereign overruling of God who knew perfectly well what would happen a thousand years before Christ came into the world. So that's the first reason why I think we're justified in seeing this psalm primarily as a prediction of the future, because it didn't refer to David in that detailed and distinct way. And the second reason we're justified in seeing this psalm primarily as a prediction of the future is because of the words in verse 22. And I say this because the writer to the Hebrews quotes the words in verse 22 and he, he applies them directly to Jesus. 
So can you see verse 22 has the sufferer saying, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation I will praise you. But listen to this. Many, many, many centuries later, uh, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 12 says that the person who spoke those words was Jesus. That's what it says in the text. And what was he saying? Well, look at verse 27, Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. So, friends, what's being claimed in the very last part of the psalm is that everyone in the whole world will serve this Lord, this sufferer, in Psalm 22. And more than that, people will be singing his praises for all time in the generations to follow. Now, David could never have said that. None of the kings of Israel could ever have said that. In fact, there's never been any empire in human history of which that sort of thing could be said. But of course, we do have more than a glimpse of it in the words and the works of Christ. So friends, this psalm, I think, wonderfully predicts the sufferings of Jesus with detailed predictions. And it also foretells the subsequent glory that will be Christ's as the everlasting king of the world. Well, now we've got to focus a little bit more on the psalm. And notice it divides into two parts. So verses 1 to 21 uh, describe the suffering of Christ. And verses 22 to the end describe the glory of Christ. And obviously the glory follows the suffering. Well, on this Good Friday morning, we're going to focus mainly on the first section, the suffering of Christ. And I want to begin by showing you one of the most important things in this psalm. It's, if you've got an NIV Bible open in front of you, you'll notice that verses 1 to 21 are set out as six paragraphs. And those six paragraphs are actually three groups of two paragraphs each. So listen carefully. If you get this, you'll really understand the key to the whole thing. There are three I-me paragraphs and three you paragraphs, and they alternate. So after each of the I-me paragraphs, there is a you paragraph. The I-me paragraphs describe the sufferings of Jesus, his uh, bodily and emotional state in increasingly horrific language. Uh, so, for example, that is verses 1 and 2, where the language is all about me and my God and what's happening to me. That's picked up again, isn't it, in verses 6 to 8, where the sufferer says, but I'm a worm and all who see me mock me. And it's taken up again in verses 12 to 18, 
many bulls surround me. I'm poured out like water. My strength is dried up. And we can think of those friends as the I-me passages. In between are the you passages, where the sufferer turns for relief and for help to God. So look at those. Verse 3, you are enthroned as the Holy One. Verse 4, in you our fathers put their trust. Verse 5, they cried to you and were saved. Verse 9, you brought me out of the womb. Verse 11, do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there's no one to help. And then verses 19 to 21, which is the final you paragraph. Verse 19, look at it. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Now when you put all of that together, what have you got? There are three passages where the sufferer looks within himself and he tells us what he's feeling. And then that is balanced by three passages where he looks, as it were, away from his suffering to God and he calls on God for help. And on this Good Friday morning, it's especially good, isn't it, to stand back for just a moment and look at those three paragraphs about his suffering. We could give them the following headings. First, verses 1 and 2 describe his spiritual suffering, his spiritual suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out day by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Now, what you need to understand this morning is that that is not a cry of doubt or loss of faith. No, it's a cry of agony because God has withdrawn. Uh, the result is that there is no answer from heaven. Look at verse 2. I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Now what we've got here, friends, is a picture of someone who is separated from God and unable to get an answer to his prayers. He's got no peace. At night he's restless. And in the Bible, that is the condition of people who are described as wicked. From beginning to end, the Bible says that the only thing that separates man from God and stops the ears of God from listening to our prayers is our rebellion and sin. And the Bible says it's only the wicked the unsaved, who have no rest. Now here's the thing. We know that Jesus was sinless. And one of the most remarkable and beautiful things in this psalm, this psalm of suffering, is that there is no confession of sin. You see, in the other psalms, whenever you find the psalmist is suffering, he nearly always looks inside himself himself. 
to see if there is any sin or guilt that he needs to confess to God. But we don't have that here. Which, of course, is exactly what we would expect if the sufferer is Jesus Christ. How, then, does the sinless Jesus find that his prayers are not answered and that he has no rest? Well, of course, the only possible answer is the New Testament one, isn't it? That he's taking our sins on himself and standing in our place. That he's bearing our sins in his body on the tree. And that in his compassion and love, God is acting towards him as he ought to be acting towards us. So God in his love is taking our sins from us and in his righteousness he's putting them on Jesus. And that is surely the very worst of the agonies that Jesus suffered on the cross, the spiritual agony that no one could see with their physical eyes and which none of the works of art depicting Jesus on the cross can even begin to capture. But here you see in this psalm, we're shown what was happening in his heart and soul. That terrible sense of banishment. A terrible sense of being separated from the familiar presence of his father, which he'd known from all eternity. Something that we could never grasp or understand. Well, the second paragraph on suffering is in verses 6 through 8. And we might call this his mental suffering. We've looked at his spiritual suffering. This is his mental suffering. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. Now that is Jesus being treated as if he were not a human being, had no rights, being trampled on underfoot like a worm despised, defenceless. Uh, they laugh at him, they're gaping at him as crowds do, shaking their heads in contempt. And of course that is exactly what happened to the Lord Jesus, to our everlasting shame as human beings. And here, friends, the crowds are very much like many people today who think that God kind of exists for our benefit People who say, well, if you've committed yourself to your God and when you're in distress he doesn't lift a finger to rescue you, well, he's not much of a God, is he? And of course, that is deeply distressing to the sensitive soul of Christ as it is to any Christian who sees people despising God and scorning those who believe in him and are trying to follow the Lord who loves us and came to die for us. But here, he's being treated as worthless and something to be trampled on. And then the third paragraph on his suffering is in verses 12 to 18, which is his physical suffering. We've seen his spiritual suffering, his mental suffering. This is a section about his physical Suffering, the awful loneliness of verse 1 is now replaced, isn't it, by the picture of a multitude of savage 
faces surrounding Jesus and closing in on him like a pack of snarling dogs. Now, friends, these words take us straight to Calvary, and they perfectly describe the situation we find in the Gospels. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David helps us to understand the the awfulness of the physical degradation of Christ on the cross by pointing to a number of things he wants you and I to think about. And the first thing that he calls us to notice, and I, I must admit I'd never seen it until I was preparing this week, the first thing he calls us to notice is that the men around the cross behave like animals. Do you notice this? Verse 12, he says they were like bulls. Verse 13, they were like roaring lions. Verse 16, they were like snarling dogs, wild dogs. Now that's very telling, isn't it? Because human beings can, of course, behave like animals, can't they? I mean, isn't that what we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment? And on that first Good Friday, as Jesus hung on the cross, the people around him were behaving like animals. Another thing that David very wonderfully predicts here is what we might call the madness of crowds. I think it's especially obvious in verse 16, if you'd like to put your nose on it, where Jesus says, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. I think we all know, don't we, something of the mentality of crowds and that all of us actually behave much worse in a crowd than when we're on our own. And I guess all of us can probably look back to our school days, can't we, and remember things that we said and did in a crowd that actually we were really rather ashamed of when we were on our own. And of course, isn't it easy to laugh at Christians when you're doing it with other people. Well, that, my friends, is the spirit that was controlling the people in verse 16. And there's another absolutely brilliant observation in verse 17, where people stare and gloat at the nakedness of Christ on the cross. All the artwork pictures him having a loincloth or something. He wasn't. He was naked. Now that, I think, is a word to our generation, isn't it? Which is absolutely fixated with images of naked people. It's everywhere. You know that. But you see, what we're being reminded of here is that in the Bible's view of things, staring and gloating at naked people is depraved. It's actually the behavior of an animal. It's not worthy of the dignity of a human being to want to gloat over someone's nakedness. So that's the description of the suffering of Jesus. And we've only really touched on it. But I do hope this Easter that you will take some time, maybe later today, to reflect on the paragraphs that describe so vividly the spiritual, mental, and physical suffering of Christ.
But we must move on because now I want to lift up your hearts and I want to encourage you by showing you what Jesus was actually doing in his own soul on the cross. Because you see, as we read all of this, the question I think in the back of our minds is, well, had faith and hope died in Jesus at this point? See, many people think that it had. But this is where the three you passages that I mentioned earlier are a tremendous encouragement to us. Because they show us where Jesus was looking for help when even his very closest friends had all run away. So here's something for us. Verses 3 to 5, Jesus says, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. You see, friends, what you and I need in these very troubled days in which we're living is not necessarily just the reassurance that God loves us. What we actually need is the assurance that God is still righteous. You see, while everything in our world is being done very unrighteously, I'm sure you'd all agree with me on that point, and when wickedness is everywhere triumphing, we want to know, don't we, that God is still reigning. Isn't that what you want to know this morning? And you see, in this psalm, Jesus looks up from his terrible, terrible isolation and loneliness, and he says, but you are enthroned as the Holy One. And he does something really, really interesting here, which we need to copy when we feel ourselves to be isolated, when we feel that the church is failing us, and when we think that the country is going down the drain. Because what Jesus does here is he looks back at the history of God's dealings with his people. It's fascinating. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, in you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted. Now, what happened in those times when things looked really, really grim? Answer in the psalm. There it is in the text. You delivered them. Verse 5. Jesus says, they cried to you and were saved. In you, they trusted. And what happened when they trusted? I mean, were they disappointed? Answer. It's there in the text. No, they were not disappointed. And it's reminding us, I think, that in times of trouble, it's really important, really important, not only to look upwards, but also to look back, to look into history. Now, you'll hear people say, well, that's terribly impractical. You know, we've got lots and lots of problems today. Let's focus on those and nothing else. That's not quite right. So, for example, if you look back to the beginning of the 18th century, you will find that both the church and all the nations in the West were in a far, far worse state than they actually are today. It seemed as if there was no spark of life at all in the church. But in that situation, God used men like Whitfield, Wesley, and all the rest 
to bring the church back to faith in Jesus. And that in turn led to certain countries, like the United Kingdom, for example, being brought back from the brink of civil war. Now, friends, you and I need to do this too. We need to look up and look back. And we need to say to God, well, God, you know, at the moment, it looks like you are not delivering us. But in the past, we see that you did. You did when the people trusted you. So we are going to learn from their example and we are going to trust you today. I find this very moving, and I hope you do too, that Jesus, the God-man, finds help by looking back into the history of God's dealings with his people and realizing that God has never, never let his people down. Second new section in verses 9 to 11 is, I think, even more touching. Once again, Jesus looks back. Who is this God that he's trusting? Is he simply the God of the tremendous faith heroes of the past? No, he's not. Verse 9. Yet you brought me out of the womb. Even from the day I was born, you have been my God. I find that very striking. You see, he's saying there, isn't he, that God is not kind of a casual acquaintance that he thinks about only when life gets difficult. We all know people like that. They're living very worldly lives. But one day they find themselves in a mess and they want to pray. But uh, throughout the years, their interest in God has been casual at best. But maybe one of their distant relatives is a pastor. And uh, on the basis of that kind of second-hand relationship, they decide to pray, firmly believing that God really ought to listen. And you want to say to them, well, hang on a moment, it's no good trying to pray to God now. You've never known him. You've never lived with him. I mean, how can you expect God to listen to you now? And of course, there is no real comfort for people like that. But here, Jesus can say to the Father in heaven, right from the very first day of my life on earth, I have known you. I've known your protection and safety. So when the great crisis came, Jesus could say, just as I've known you through all the years of my life on earth, I know that you will not be far from me now when the trouble is near and there's no one to help. Because, and here's the lesson, friends, a lifelong relationship with God is the very best thing to have when the trouble comes. And what about the third you section? Well, it starts in verse 19, it goes through to verse 21. And this is the, this is the climax of the suffering. Uh, his cry goes up very urgently, sort of at the 11th hour. He says, don't be far off, come quickly to help me, deliver my life, rescue me from the lions. 
And uh, this is interesting. In, in this critical moment of that 11th hour cry, there is a real treasure in the passage, in verse 21. Uh, you'll notice in your Bible that there is a footnote against the word, save me. Can you see that in verse 21? And if you look down to the bottom of the page, you'll see that the alternative translation is, you have heard me. Now, interestingly, in the Hebrew text, that is the last word in the verse. And the language experts say that a more accurate reading of verse 21 would be this. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions, from the horns of the wild oxen. Pause. You have heard me. And of course that fits very perfectly, doesn't it, with the abrupt ending of the suffering in verses 1 to 21 and the beginning of the triumph and the glory that starts in verse 22. You know, so Jesus has been crying out to his father in verses 19 and 20 to save him. And suddenly he says, you have heard me. And the suffering is all over. So I think those three you passages are extremely precious. They give us a beautiful window into how Christ was thinking and praying and casting himself on God and finding strength in the past finding strength in his lifelong walk with God and finding strength from urgent prayer. And then finding very marvellously that at the 11th hour, God hears him, comes to his aid and delivers him. And uh, what were the consequences of that surprising deliverance? I mean, did the suffering of Jesus actually accomplish anything of lasting importance? Well, that's going to be the focus of our service on Sunday, but just this morning, notice, will you, that although Jesus suffered and died alone, Psalm 22 does not end with him rejoicing alone. Because in verse 25, he calls on this great assembly of God's people to join him in praising God. And notice also that his victory has international implications. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. So friends, as I close, let's go back to that question back in verse 1. What is the answer to that tremendous question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer to that question is you. You are the reason Jesus was forsaken. And it was his love and our sin that kept him nailed on the cross till the end. And I want you to remember that 
His last words on the cross were not, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No. His last words were, well, the last sentence in the psalm. It is finished. That's the meaning of those words, the very last words in Psalm 22. And it means that Jesus is alive and heaven's gates are open and you are forgiven. And if you want to know what that means for you personally, well, you'd better come back on Sunday morning. But now let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for giving us this wonderful insight into the spiritual, mental, and physical suffering of Jesus on the cross. Thank you that Jesus suffered in these ways for us, that we might not have to go through it, that we might be saved. Thank you that it was a perfect, finished work and that there's nothing we can do to contribute to our salvation but accept it as a gift and we will remember that now and celebrate that as we take the Lord's Supper as Jesus himself taught us thank you Lord Amen